Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. My name is Whitney. I'm going to start us off this evening. If you have been here before, if you haven't been here before, I need a little more volume, I think. It's usually not a problem that I have. <laughs> Whether or not you've been here, I'm just going to go over a quick little overview about Golden Beer Talks. So it's just a group of people who live here in town, and we just recruit people that we think have something interesting to say, and we... Um, cooperate with these folks here at Windy Saddle to get this awesome meal going and throw down some beer and um, just get together and think about things a little bit and talk to each other. There's a lot of conviviality. That's what we specialize in here. And um, it costs a little tiny bit of money to do that because we provide meals for our guests and if we have people come from out of town we get them hotel rooms and and that kind of thing. So uh, once a year when we get around to our anniversary we um, ask Dr. Dale to come and uh, make a special auction for us. And tonight we're auctioning off this table. It could be yours at the next Golden Beer Talks of your choice. Yours and your friends. Yay! It includes not only the beautiful appointments, but meals and beers for everyone at the table. Beers too. Beers too. We specialize in beer. You can't have conviviality without the beer. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Silverware is included and cleaned up for you afterward. Personal waiter, the whole thing. So that's what we're auctioning off. You can pick the, uh, the month of your choice. We meet every second Tuesday of the month. And so uh, Dr. Dale is going to come on up and work his magic. Thank you, Dr. Dale. Are you ready for an auction? Yeah. All right. Look here, I'm going to start this real cheap so we can get an auction going. That means we need more than one person bidding. Okay? So I got $50 for the table. Who give me 60? I got 50 here. Give me 60 and 60 and 60 and 60 and 60. I got 50 for the table. I got 60 here now. Give me 65. I got 60 over here. I got 65 now 70. I got 65 now 70. I got 65 and 70 and 70 and 70 and 70 and 70 and 70 and 70. I got 70. Give me five. I got 70. Give me five and 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 five. I got a hundred back there. I got a hundred dollars. I got a hundred. Give me a hundred and five. I got a hundred back here in five and five and five. I got a hundred dollars. Give me five and five and five and five. I'll take a hundred and two and a half. <laughs> I got a hundred over here. Give me two. Hundred and two and a half and half and half and half and half. Hundred. Give me two. I got two, hundred two and a half. Give me hundred and five. <laughs> This is for a bid from a beer connoisseur. I got 105, give me 150. Got 105, got 150. I got 150 now, 110. I got 150 now, 110 and 10 and 10 and 10 and 10. I got 150, give me 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. I got 150 and 10. I got 150 and 10 and 10 and 10 and 10. Don't sit on your hands. I got 110. I got 110. Give me 250. 112 and a half. 112 and a half. 112 and a half. I got 112 and a half and 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 half. Are you guys wearing out on me? Some of you folks haven't even bid yet. See, if you give me 112 and a half, then I can get 115. Right? 112 and a half, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, now 20. I'm going up a nickel. I got 115 back there, give me 20 and 20 and 20. I got 115, give me 20 and 20 and 20 and 20 and 20. 
115, give me 20. 115, give me 20. All done. All through. All through. How about in the back, back there? You know, they make a lot of money in New York, those passport stuff, you know. 120. 120. 125. I got 120 over here. Five and five and five. All done. All through. I got 120 with you, right? 115? 120? 125? Come on! You're done? Do you want two tables? So 120. Now, now the auction's not over. The not the auction's not over. Luann was going to match any bid, and so Luann is buying a table for 120. You want a table for 120? You want a table for 120? We gotta have a name back here. Tim Hoffman. Tim Hoffman. We got it. And we got Luann Dale. Anybody else for 120? Of course. Of course. Frank Baja. Does anybody read Golden.com? If you read Golden.com, you get beautiful pictures from somebody over here at the camera. Anybody else for in for 120? Let me do this. I want to come back for a week or two. <laughs> All done, all through, sold! All right, so each of those groups, whatever month they want, they'll get to reserve the table, and they'll go bring their couple guests and enjoy the evening, Golden Bear Talks, just once a year. Then we have some money to feed everybody and give beer to all our guests, and, and that kind of thing. So that's what we do. And we won't ask you for any money otherwise. If you want to sign up for our email list, we won't give that away either. We'll just send you some reminders about what we got going. Dr. Dale. We've got some holidays this month I just want to mention. So tomorrow's Veterans Day. If you are a veteran, thank you very much. If you know a veteran, please make sure that you thank them. It was also Election Day last Tuesday. Woo, yeah. And our mayor uh, was reelected, and she had a little party here. Yeah, yeah. And there was a little bit of beer left over. So we're giving it away tonight. If you've had a Coors beer tonight, you can thank Marjorie Sloan. <laughs> Real quick, we also want to thank Golden.com for always promoting our events and being just an awesome presence in our community. If you've never been to their website, you should check it out. There's a, a couple different newsletters you can sign up for, and they'll just send you an email every day and kind of tell you what's going on around town. It's pretty cool at golden.com. Then we also want to thank the awesome staff here at the Windy Saddle. They cook for us. They clean for us. They make coffee for us. They're amazing. Cool. Another important denizen of our community. I'm going to bring him up, our beer ambassador, Frank Blaha. Hello, everyone. Happy November 10th. And indeed, this month, our featured beer is Coors Beer, donated by Mayor Marjorie Sloan. 
And let me point out, Coors won two gold medals at the Great American Beer Festival in 2015. And, and the first gold medal was on uh, Coors Banquet Beer as a light American lager. Their second gold medal was from AC Golden, and I'll consider that Coors, but it was from AC Golden Brewing. And they won a gold medal also on a strong barrel-aged stout, which was actually described as a Russian imperial stout called Chat, I believe it was. C-T-A-Y-T. But anyway, so two gold medals at the Great American Beer Festival for Coors, our very own brewery just down the street here in Golden. And in terms of beer trivia, since we always have to have some sort of beer trivia and we needed to keep it short, how many breweries have there been in Golden through the years? Starting with the first one, which was not Coors. More. Dr. Dale gets it at eight. At least that's my count. We had Golden City Brewery, the first one, which was open from 1867 to 1874. Then we had Coors, and I'm just going to consider Coors in all its different incarnations. So 1873 to present for Coors. Then there was Eagle Brewing, which existed from 1889 to 1897. And then there was a Herman Koneman Brewery, and I'm not sure if that was a name, but he was for sure the owner. And it was from 1891 all the way to 1891. <laughs> and then there was the new Golden City Brewery, 1993 to the present. And then there was Cannonball Creek that opened in 2013, then later the same year Mountain Toad, and then later the same year Barrels and Bottles. And that's how I got roped into Golden Beer Talks, because my wife was going to these meetings, and they were planning on this, and I was like, no, 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 I got enough to do, I got enough to do. And then it was like, well, we've, we've got another meeting, you know, we're going to meet at Barrels and Bottles. Oh, that's the brewery that just opened. I'll go with you. And then somehow I came out of that, and it was like I was getting beer for the first Golden Beer Talks, and here we are two years later, and I'm still being the beer ambassador. And um, the history of the of the older breweries in Golden was from Of Mines and Beer, a history of brewing and 19th century in 19th century Colorado. Yay. So that's the beer trivia. And with that, I'll introduce Carl, who's going to introduce our speaker. Although I think he's late. I think he said his watch was late. His watch was slow. All right. Thank you. Great crowd tonight. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Mr. Andrew Novick. Um, Andrew is an electrical engineer, and he has been working at NIST, which is the National Institutes of uh, Standards and Technology, um, the campus that's up in Boulder, ever since he was a freshman at CU Boulder. Um, Andrew has a great many interests and things that he does. Um, I've talked with him about a few of them. He plays in a couple different bands. He likes to do um, experiential art installations. Um, once he, he likes to collect things. He estimates that he has over 140 collections. Um, one time somebody local um, did a, a whole art installation of all his collections and there were over 8,000 objects in it. Um, among those collections there are um, over 600 dolls. So but I know you all want to hear about that, but maybe that will be a future beer talk tonight. Tonight, he is going to talk to us all about the atomic clock. So with that, a uh, big GBT welcome for Andrew Novick. 
All right. Thanks, everybody. Being a uh, former front man of a band, I don't need a mic stand. I just get to hold the mic and just yell into it. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. I've never been to this. This is very cool, and it looks like a great crowd. I love your fuzzy hat, by the way. I might want to wear that later, if at all possible. That's amazing. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk, um, I'm going to give you my one-sentence um, description of how atomic clocks work. And then I'm going to take a few steps back and kind of talk about the history of clocks. How cl I mean, not clocks per se, but how clocks work. And um, coming up to our current atomic clocks. And then talk about why. Why do we need such good clocks? So uh, how an atomic clock works is really based on um, a naturally occurring frequency. It's a resonant frequency of a cesium atom. That's all you need to know. You can all go home now. Uh, how, how a clock works in general is really has to do with you need two things to have a clock, something periodic and some way to count it. So uh, for instance, a pendulum is a good example because everybody has seen a pendulum, hopefully. Uh, but there's the, the periodic part of the pendulum is just the arm swinging back and forth. And then the gears are actually the counter. And so as it swings back and forth in a regular manner, the gears are counting it, and the gears are geared to show you, you know, hands on a clock. Uh, so, uh, and the periodicity, the frequency of the pendulum is based on the length of the arm of the pendulum. And that's, uh, that's kind of a cool facet of all. all you have to do is change the length of the arm, and you can change the frequency. So you could tune that clock to be... Uh, correct, you know, compared to some other, some other source. Um, so um, you have a something periodic and a counter. So imagine even before that, like what what is like the original clock might have been. Actually, I say it's like a calendar, in the sense that what was one of the things that people you know in prehistory were uh, counting was the sun going over, and so like. They see the sun appears and then it disappears, and they start counting that on a calendar. And so you have something periodic and a counter. Something like a sundial is a little tricky because it doesn't follow my rule of being periodic. It was really taking the periodicity of the sun and breaking it down with a shadow, breaking it down into less and less. Um, so, but the sun itself was really something that was periodic. Uh, there's things like water clocks where it's like some big uh, container of water with a small hole and it's dripping out. And the idea is that's something uniform, right? With no matter the level of the water, it drips out in a uniform way. And the idea is that the better, the more uniform your periodicity is, the better your clock is. And so you have something like a pendulum, and the pendulum is swinging at one time per second, typically, like a grandfather clock, and it's adjusted to go at once per second. And so, uh, the problem with that is if, if it is inaccurate at all, say it's 10%, um, say it's 10 off in frequency, then after 10 swings, you're already one second off. And so what we've learned throughout history is the faster that periodic nature, the, f the higher frequency is better for a clock. And so take, for example, um, a quartz crystal, like a standard wristwatch. That's actually going at 32,768 hertz. 
So 32.768 kilohertz. Does anybody know why that number, what that number means? It's actually 2 to the 7th. Uh, so it's something that in, you know, digital, early digital electronics, it's very easy to divide something by 2 in, in an analog circuit or digital circuit. And so you have some high frequency, and you just divide it by 2, divide it by 2, divide it by 2, and to get down, divide it by 2 7 times, and you get to 1 second. But the idea is you can't really get a quartz crystal that oscillates at once per second. That's too slow for how quartz works. Unfortunately, I don't think we have time to talk about how quartz works. It's fascinating, though, so uh, we could talk about that later. But, um, uh, but what you have now, if you have this watch that's 32,000 hertz, and if it's 10% off, uh, you've actually divided down um, to one second by 32,000. So uh, in essence, you're dividing down that error as well. So the idea is the faster and faster clock that you can make, the better. Uh, and so uh, how atomic clocks work, how am I doing on time? I'm doing all right. I'm going really fast. Wow. <laughs> we, can, we can digress to anything if I keep going at this rate. Um, let's see. Did I forget anything that was important? No. Okay. So atomic clocks uh, were started to be developed in the 50s and 60s, and they actually started out with a, a molecule, an ammonia molecule. Uh, some of that work was done at NIST in Washington, um, D.C. or near Washington, D.C. Uh, it was called the National Bureau of Standards. People probably maybe remember National Bureau of Standards. It changed to NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, in 1988, I believe. So, um, But the Bureau of Standards is in charge of standards for all the SI units. So you have like the volt, the second, which is time. You have the meter. Uh, and so all of these standards, and I'll talk a little bit more about standards, but uh, they found that you could take a molecule like ammonia and it actually has a relationship um, with frequency. And so, and this comes from like early 1900s, things like Niels Bohr, Albert Einstein, uh, where they found that atoms would actually have um, different energy states. And there's a, there's a direct relationship between frequency and energy. So when an atom would decay from some energy state to a lower energy state, it would actually give off a frequency. And the converse is true. So if you have an atom in some particular energy state and you interrogate it with a frequency, you can actually force it to change state. And so that sounds pretty bizarre, kind of heady, whatever, but it's a naturally occurring frequency. And that's the first time we've had something like that, aside from the sun, um, in, you know, in modern clocks. So the pendulum is a human-made thing, right? We, we tuned it by the, the length of the arm. The length of the arm actually changes with temperature, uh, so it's not that stable. Quartz crystal is also the frequency of a quartz crystal. You can make a quartz crystal at almost any frequency, but the frequency it's, depends on how you cut it and the circuit that it's in, the, the resistor, capacitor circuit that that is in. So there again, it's a human-defined frequency. So when we started working with molecules and atoms, it's like, oh, wait, this is a naturally occurring thing. And so that means that anywhere, anyone, anywhere in the world can replicate this with the same type of atom. And so that's a very powerful kind of anything for a standard uh, is because then you don't have to be in the same place as somebody else. You can generate this, um, this standard on your own. And so... Uh, we, there, there was a lot of different kinds of atoms used, but 
the definition, and in the 60s it was, um, became cesium, and cesium is an alkali metal. Um, it's on the left side of the periodic table, uh, along with like hydrogen and rubidium. And those alkali metals have one valence electron. So think back to your um, high school chemistry class and like the atom and like the, the electrons going around the atom. And there's an orbital level with electrons on it. And when there's only one um, electron, that valence electron, that's a very stable atom. And it doesn't decay into some other state uh, very easily or very readily, I should say. And so it's very easy to work with when you want to actually um, observe it or force it to change. And so basically how an atomic clock works is the resonant frequency is defined as the frequency that makes that outer electron change states. It might be spinning one way and it changes the spin state. Um, it might go to a different orbital level. There's different ways to interrogate atoms. Uh, so how an atomic clock works is we have, uh, for a cesium clock, we had a bunch of cesium atoms streaming down a vacuum tube. So it was about a three meter long tube. And they would heat up cesium and it would give thermal velocity. So it gives us this energy and it would be able to go through a small slit and have a, it would go about 220 meters per second down this uh, vacuum tube. And we interrogate it with this frequency that's on the order of nine gigahertz. So nine billion. So it's nine with nine zeros after it. So it's a very, very high frequency that causes the cesium atom to change atomic states. And so what we do is we interrogate those atoms as they're flying by, and then um, they will uh, be measured on the other side to see if they change states or not. And so we can tune the frequency back and forth to make the most atoms change state, and we measure it at the other end. So it's, it's really a feedback loop. We're locking a frequency to make the most atoms change state. And there's lots of factors in it as far as um, how wide of a band that frequency is. But we basically, the, how, the, the narrower that band is, the better. So you know, we're tuning it, but we're tuning it very slightly. Um, you know, like a few hertz on the order of 9 billion hertz is not bad for, um, you know, we call it the line width of the, the tuning. So we generate a 9 gigahertz signal, hit the atoms, lock it to that. And it starts out from a 5 megahertz signal. So that's a lot easier to deal with. It's, it's um, uh, you know, you, you, we buy a really good quartz crystal at 5 megahertz and multiply it up. So when we're tuning, we're actually tuning the 5 megahertz. So when you have this whole system and the 5 megahertz is locked to the cesium frequency, basically, then your output of the clock is 5 megahertz that's very, very, very stable. A quartz crystal will change in frequency over time. That's just naturally how it works and it's very susceptible to things like temperature and shock but if you lock it to something then it's very stable and so the output of this atomic clock is five megahertz does anyone find anything wrong with that that's five megahertz is a frequency right that's the periodic part so the atomic clocks are just really the periodic part of the clock they're not actually clocks that we call them oscillators but everyone calls it the atomic clock because that's, you know, no one cares what an oscillator is. Like, I want to know what, what time it is. So, so the output of the atomic clock is a frequency, not a time. Uh, so what that means is you just count. I mean, you can put a digital display or hands or whatever, and it just it counts to 5 million because the output is a 5 megahertz. counts to 5 million, and that's one second. 
So it's a five megahertz signal, five million hertz, so it's five million cycles per second. And you just count to five million and that's one second. And that's basically, you know, how, how atomic clocks work. Um, some innovations that have happened throughout um, the last several years uh, at NIST and Boulder and around the world is instead of having this beam tube clock where the atoms are moving, they're moving very quickly. I said 220 meters per second. So um, does anyone know what a Doppler shift is? So Doppler shifts, imagine like when a car is driving by with the horn and it's like it, it changes frequency, right? But when you're in the car, you're honking the horn, it's just so it's, a, it's you don't notice because your frame of reference is you are moving along with the frequency, so it's at a constant tone. But from an outside observer, and this is this is relativity type of language, but from an outside observer, it changes in frequency, and that's because when a frequency is coming towards you, you perceive it differently than when the frequency is going away from you. So it's actually changing frequency as it goes by, and that's true for an atomic clock. We're hitting these atoms with a frequency and they're moving past us. So that means when they're moving towards the frequency or when they're moving away from the frequency, that actually widens our range of wh where they're going to see that frequency. So we try to hit them like exactly at 90 degree angle. So at least they don't see it as they're coming, but they're still moving. And so it's called second order Doppler shift. And so hitting an atom with a frequency while the atom's moving was the biggest problem with the 1980s and 90s uh, atomic clocks. And that's when I, I came into school in Boulder in 1987, and uh, my boss uh, was the electrical engineer, head electrical, electrical engineer for NIST 7, the beam tube clock. So in the 90s, they developed what they call an atomic fountain clock. And that's basically, they take uh, laser cooling, which is something that was partially invented at NIST and uh, Nobel Prize winning research in physics, where they actually take lasers and they take the cesium atoms in a field of lasers coming from several different trajectories, and they make a ball of atoms. And then they turn off all the lasers, except for the, the laser on the bottom side is on for slightly longer and actually tosses the atoms up. It gives it this... Um, optical energy and it tosses the ball of atoms up and then it falls back through and that's it goes actually up through that cavity where it's getting hit by the frequency but now it's moving very slowly so it was 220 meters per second and then it goes up for like about a second and it's moving much much slower so they basically got rid of the Doppler shifts um, there's a problem with that because uh, they can make this measurement when the atoms come back down, they go through a laser and they detect whether they've changed states or not. Then they make another ball of atoms and then they toss it up. So it's not a continual thing. It's continual meaning it goes about every second or so, but uh, it's not continual by meaning it's like continual atoms and constant steering of the frequency. But that seems to be not a problem when, when the oscillator that's generating the frequency is good enough it doesn't, you know, in between those one-second measurements, it doesn't seem to uh, change that much. Uh, so that's kind of some of the innovations of atomic clocks. And these clocks are good to, so like NIST-7 was good to uh, what, we would, what we would say like parts in 10 to the 14th. So that really means like 14 decimal places. So if we said like 5 megahertz, 0. 0.000014 decimal places out, that's... 
the, the, the last digit's the unknown digit. Like that digit's like fluttering around. You can't trust that last digit. So that, that's, that's the resolution of the NIST 7 clock. Uh, the atomic fountain clock is parts in 10 to the 15th or maybe parts in 10 to the 16th. So much, much better. These clocks, you know, and they always give a figure like this clock would lose, gain or lose a second in, you know, it was like 300,000 years and 3 million years and uh, 30 million years. And so the next logical question is like, why do we need that, right? Like, how, how long, is this clock going to be going for 30 million years and who's going to be here to measure it, right? And so it's a very common question, like, why do we need that good of clocks? And really has nothing to do with long-term timing. Uh, it has to do with short-term timing. So what it means is if you can divide down the second to 14 decimal places, you can define a very, very short interval. And so you know, if, if your computer runs at um, you know, like 3 gigahertz or whatever, your computer processor, that's 3 billion things happening per second. So in your computer, you certainly want to have something that knows, you know, something that's happening before something else. You have to know the order in which that's happening. You have to even know that it's 3 gigahertz to begin with. Uh, something like financial trading, stock markets, um, there's billions of transactions happening every second. And so uh, we need to define the second more and more. Um, it's interesting that uh, there's a really good book called Longitude, and it has to do with um, the kind of the race to make a better clock that you could take on a ship. Um, clock making has historically really been kind of necessitized by um, by something, right? Like we need better clocks for this. And in that, in that case, it was we need clocks that can work on ships because now we're starting to do intercontinental traveling and we're, do, we're, we're navigating by the stars. And if you have star charts, um, that's great. But you have to know what time it is to know where you are in relation to the stars. So you had to have good ships. And you're, you're, you're sea bound for weeks at a time or months at a time. So you had to have a good clock, and pendulums just weren't cutting it, right? On the ship, the pendulum's like going all over the place. They even did things with like a double pendulum, like a pendulum on top of a pendulum, trying to, to um, you know, uh, make it more stable. And uh, it was, um, uh, they basically, what they came up with this was the marine chronometer, which was basically like a wind-up watch. It was actually a big, it looks like a pocket watch, but it's giant. And you would wind up a spring and give it energy. So it was a pendulum in the sense of its inner workings, but it was just bouncing back and forth. The escapement was bouncing back and forth. So it wasn't using gravity. It was using energy that came from the spring. And so then they could put that on ships and um, it could, you know, it could work for their navigation. Ironically enough, Time is still highly, highly used. I would say it's the most used thing in navigation in these modern times. And does anyone know what I'm talking about? GPS. GPS. Yeah, who here has a GPS receiver? Probably almost anyone with a smartphone, right? Does anyone know how GPS works? Okay, triangulation or better, like octangulation, if you can see eight satellites. The only reason GPS works is because there's atomic clocks on board the satellites. So there's commercially made, space-qualified atomic clocks, probably good to parts in 10 to the 13th. We all know what that means now. 
um, multiple clocks on each one of the satellites. And so when you're here with your GPS receiver and you're receiving signals and all these satellites send out a pulse at the top of the second to within nanoseconds, like it's very precise. And when you receive signals from all these satellites, they all send it to you at the same time. But kind of like if someone sends you a letter from Sweden and a letter from New York and a letter from Denver, you get the one from Denver sooner usually, right? The signal from the satellite closest to you gets to you slightly sooner than the satellite that's farther away from you on the horizon. And so by the fact that all those clocks on the satellites are synchronized and they all send at the exact same time and you receive them at different times, and part of their data message is where the satellite is. So you say, oh, I got satellite 25 first. I'm closest to that satellite. And so if, if you have, you have to have at least four, but um, ideally maybe eight satellites. So it's really like an octangulation. But the more satellites, the better. And you can, you can navigate to within you know, a few meters. Uh, and it's all based on atomic clocks. So kind of ironically, the clocks have been the basis of navigation really since since the beginning of navigation. So, uh, but also I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, philosophically, like time is, um, just like other standards, it's a human-made thing. So like the meter, right? Like some king somewhere said like, oh, this is a meter. It's like the length of my arm or whatever, you know. Um, and if there's a different king, a different size of the meter or the foot or whatever. Uh, so but when you have standards, it's something that everyone agrees on, right? So they say, okay, there's this meter stick, platinum uranium rod in Paris. It's in a vacuum. That's the official meter. And so in America, our standards bureau has the American meter. And every so often, you know, we and other countries take our meter to France and compare. And we do the same thing with the kilogram. And um, uh, so you, you would, you basically, it's this internationally agreed upon thing. But it's somewhat arbitrary, right? The meter could have been twice as long. It could have been a third as long. It was, didn't matter. But as everyone knows what a meter is because we all agree that it's a standard. And so, um, you know, when we say like time is, you know, is esoteric or specific or whatever, it's like it's a human-made thing, and it really comes from dividing up the day into some amount, you know, of intervals that make sense to us mentally. And really, that uh, the second used to be before atomic clocks, the second used to be defined as one eighty-six thousand four hundredth of a day. Right? The astronomers told us how long a day was, or we see when the sun, you know, at sunrise or sunset or whatever. Um, and so uh, it wasn't really until atomic clocks came around that we saw that the day really uh, varied some. Uh, the day wasn't really the same length. The Earth's axis is on a wobble. Um, the universe is expanding. The, day, the length of the day varies. And so... Until you have a better clock, you don't know how good your previous clock was, right? You know, it's like we say we have the best clock in the world, and people are like, how good is it? Like, well, we don't know. We need a better clock to compare it to. So, uh, um, so something about standards and this, this human-made thing. And so, we, and it was, um, you know, there was the sexagesimal, de you know, decimal, sexagesimal base six system that defined, you know, Pythagoras and the 360-degree circle in this base six. And so there was this, th you know, 360 degrees, and it was um, 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds in a minute. So we've, we've kept this old thing from a base six number system. It's pretty crazy to think that, um, you know, but, but it would be really difficult to change because we've all agreed on this, right? 
Um, the other thing about time I just want to um, maybe finish up with here is that the second is actually the most well-defined of all the standards. So when we say it's part and 10 to the 15th or 16th or whatever, um, the meter is like something like a part and 10 to the 6th. The kilogram, part and 10 to the 7th or whatever. So most of the other SI units are actually tied to the second because it, it is the most, um, it has the least uncertainty of any other mesons. So now we don't have that platinum uranium rod in Paris anymore. The meter is actually defined as a wavelength of light. And the wavelength is one over the frequency. So we've turned time, our atomic second, into length. Um, and the volt. And um, pretty soon the kilogram. The kilogram is actually the last artifact type standards where uh, every several years all the countries they take their kilogram to France and they all compare them to the French you know double vacuum chamber kilogram and um, the the watt balance which has to do with you know pressure and energy and the second is in there uh, so the second will really be part of all of the other SI units so it's I'm pretty proud to be working in the department that's helping all the other standards um, you know, become become standards or be able to become compared. Um, let's see. I think um, I'm right about at the end of my uh, time here for this section. So I think we take a little bit of a break. Is that right? Are you going to do it? Yeah, okay. Sure. All right. Big hand for Andrew Novick, please. <laughs> All right, everyone. Help yourself to some more course beer or anything else that's up for offering, and we'll get back together in just about ten minutes for what I'm sure will be a great Q and A session with Andrew. Thank <laughs> you. All right. Did everyone have time to digest your soup and what you learned about atomic clocks? <laughs> Um, yeah, I would love to. Well, I got, I got, I was talking to a few people over here. One person was um, a little confused when I said about the 9 billion hertz down to the 5 megahertz. And so one thing I kind of forgot to mention, because I didn't want to wow you with my awesome knowledge of uh, atomic resonance frequencies, but um, <laughs> this cesium transition is actually 9.192631770 hertz. And so... It's, it's not a round number, is my point. So if you actually had a quartz crystal, you could generate that frequency and lock that frequency to the atoms. Um, but then what you have in the end is a really, really, really stable 9.192631770 hertz signal. And that's not that useful because that's not, that's not meaningful to any other thing. So when you take a 5 megahertz quartz crystal and lock it, but you know you multiply it up to that high frequency and you steer it at 5 megahertz, so you're locking this 5 megahertz to this high kind of r random frequency. Um, so your output of the clock is the stable 5 megahertz, and that's what's important because you can, you can take 5 megahertz and easily, you know, you're, you're gearing it down. You're, it's exactly right. It's exactly, I mean, like the, like the pendulum, you're still gearing it down. Here's the question. Okay, yeah, so the question was like, how did the agency begin? Um, and um, it was in DC, it's a federal government, uh, and we are really part of the Department of Commerce. So standards have a lot to do with trade. 
right? So if you're if you're trading in coffee or you're trading in um, you know parts that are measured by some you know metric scale or whatever, um, and so really a federal agency would be one to oversee something like that. It's a federally kind of mandated thing that. Um, somebody manufacturing or in trade has to be in compliance because really that's how a trade works, right? It's like the value of something or the size or whatever. Things have to fit. Parts have to fit. Uh, so um, time was time is kind of the, one of the most notable or interesting ones in the sense that people kind of understand time better than a lot of other things because, you know, we all deal with time in our daily lives. So uh, I think it's really and, – and also – when you're talking about something agreeing on with other countries, it's, these are international standards. So it also makes sense that the um, that the uh, it's a federal agency. But it really began in 1900, and so um, uh, it didn't come to Boulder until uh, the 50s. The, our building was actually built in 54, um, and it kind of kind of looks like it, I guess. <laughs> it's like uh, Eisenhower. We got a question here. I think officially we are on it, <laughs> but we haven't really adopted it. Um, I, I find it interesting that that time is not in the metric system as as um, you know. There's not something that's like ten seconds, a hundred seconds, thousand seconds, uh, and but officially, I mean, everything. When it, if we publish a paper, all of our units are metric. Uh, officially. The United States is on the metric system, but just no one ever really learned it, right? So <laughs> we like inches. <laughs> really? See, I see. I find that fascinating because if you're gonna, yeah, I mean, you have to have. I guess that brings. Okay. Like miles or inches and Right, so it's kind of progress, right? Like you don't want to hold up progress by converting everything. Although at some point, I mean, I don't... Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to take time and money to to do it. Wow. Um, okay, wait, one more. Uh, here, let me give you this question here. What do you do every day? <laughs> Well, I come in late, of course, because I'm always late to almost everything. Um, but uh, I'm I, so I'm not a physicist. So the people that are making these clocks and these discoveries and future clocks mostly are physicists. I'm an electrical engineer. I basically build measurement systems to compare the clocks. 
right? So if you have something that's a very, very, um, you know, low uh, uncertainties, then you have to have a low uncertainty measurement system, and those things don't necessarily exist, something you can buy off the shelf. So we design a lot of custom things actually to compare clocks. And I compare clocks uh, remotely. A lot of times I compare clocks to the nanosecond, to billions of seconds that are halfway around the world. And I can actually steer clocks too that are halfway around the world. So uh, one of my projects also is time.gov. So it's an official time website. It's the web clock for the federal government. That's one of my projects. I've made a time widget so people can put a little code in their website and it brings up a NIST clock. Um, I do tours. I do a little bit of everything. So kind of a, a jack of all. And in the jacket there. Yeah, those, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, the uh, what was the first question? Oh, there's just a counter. Right. It's um, it's it's not so much. So we don't we're not counting in the sense of ten to the fourteen. We basically have this uncertainty. So we have all of these zeros. We have a five megahertz signal with you know fourteen zeros. And it's not moving. That last digit's like bouncing around. That's our, our uncertainty digit. Uh, and so it's really about stability. So if you have a clock that's running for a long time, meaning you know 10 seconds or a month or a year, uh, how far off does it get? And so in the short term, it's moving around. And this, you know, when I say moving around, these are like picoseconds or femtoseconds. So. Those are your parts in 10 to the 12, 12 in 10 to the 15th. So it's not necessarily counting frequency at that level. It's that your, your, what your frequency output is is only varying by that level. And so the goal is to have a more stable clock, which means more stable means that moving around is like moving around even smaller. Um, so the jitter or the, the uncertainty of the clock is at that level. Um, and as far as the second question, um, relativity, uh, it's true that clocks run at different uh, frequencies at different altitudes. And that goes back to Einstein and theory of relativity, time dilation. A moving clock actually moves at a, uh, moves at a different frequency than a stationary clock. And uh, acceleration can have an effect on the frequency of a, an oscillator. So there's, there's this twins experiment that they or um, kind of paradox where they had you know two twins and they flew one of them at like close to the speed of light and came back and he was actually slightly younger than his twin of born at the same time because time traveled more slowly for the one in motion and that's like a neat kind of analogy but it actually is true in the I think in the probably in the 80s the commercially available HP atomic clocks were good enough they could actually put one on the Concorde jet and fly it. So they synchronized these clocks to the nanosecond. They flew one on the Concorde jet with a high acceleration and back and saw that it actually moved slightly less, almost exactly per Einstein's equations, um, kind of proving, you know, which is crazy. How did Einstein come up with this stuff? He had no possible wherewithal to actually measure it. He just came up with it. So 
there was um, so some of the future clocks uh, at NIST are optical standards, and they're talking about like parts in ten to the seventeenth, parts in ten to the eighteenth. I mean, you're talking about su such you know minute jitter, minute changes. Like the stability is incredible. Uh, but there's a there's a good story in NPR where they're talking to somebody talking about these optical clocks. And they actually, it wasn't different floors of the building. They actually had this, so it's an experiment. This is not something that's, you know, part of the standard. It's still, uh, it's still an experiment. It's a big laser table. Uh, it's kind of like those room full of tubes that was like, you know, these tube amplifiers, and now they're like transistors, and there's a billion of them on a chip. Like this clock takes up like a whole room, right? And it's a laser table. But they could actually move the laser table 10 centimeters and see the frequency change as per Einstein um, relativity based on, in this case, it's, it's gravitational. So by, by being something at a higher altitude, it's actually a gravitational shift um, of frequency. So clocks, yeah, clocks, and, and, we, and there's huge corrections. Like we have to make, we have to know our altitude to a pretty high degree to make an adjustment because somebody at a clock at sea level and someone at a mile high, um, the frequency actually is different. So, you know, when I was saying how everyone has the exact same frequency all around the world, now we kind of know that's not true because the clocks, you know, the cesium transition frequency in and of itself is different at different altitudes because of gravitational relativity. So it's pretty amazing. Um, I think, wait, you had a question next, I think, or did you? Yeah, so she was asking about like the, the Rube Goldberg clock, right? If you see a picture of one of these atomic clocks, which now we know are oscillators, it doesn't look like anything, right? You, you bring people in the room with the clock, right? And it's just like nothing's moving, nothing's happening. It's just sitting there. You're like, what's the, you know, what's the clock? But there's lots of, I mean, these future clocks, um, it's a laser table, and there's lots of mirrors and different shutters and lasers and things, and... Um, some of them look like almost like a mine, like imagine like a like a mine in the ocean, because there's like the lasers coming in at all different angles. So like you have this really crazy looking stuff. But um, the 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 future clocks are not cesium. They use, they're using aluminum, strontium, um, ytterbium, and those are all um, the transition frequencies are much higher. So. We call like a cesium clock or rubidium or hydrogen, those are uh, microwave b standards. So that frequency on the order of like one to nine gigahertz, those clocks, that's a microwave frequency. Same as your microwave at home. It's a microwave oven. It's, it's on the order of a gigahertz. These ones are uh, sometimes terahertz. So they're much, much higher frequency. And if you remember from the beginning, the higher the frequency, the better. Because if you have something stable at this frequency, when you divide it down, to a second or even down to megahertz, it's way more stable because you're dividing down that stability. Um, so I'm not sure when you say the odd numbers. Yeah, cesium. Yeah, I'm not sure if they all are all odds. Hydrogen is one. Yeah, maybe they're all odd on the on the alkali metals. I'm not totally sure about that. Um, question. 
Right. It's so it was when it was commercialized by HP in the '60s. Um, the first uh, HP clock, the 5061. It's about the size of like maybe like an old VCR. It's a little taller, so maybe like this, this wide. They weigh about 80 pounds. That what do you say? A Betamax? Yeah, like a Betamax. <laughs> Now, now we're really seeing who's dated in the room if you're talking about Betamax. But um, uh, yeah, it, was, it weighed a lot. The beam tube was only about this big. So it did have like a vacuum tube? Yeah, it has a vacuum tube inside it. And they last about 12 to 15 years. And you could buy a tube, you could buy a vacuum tube and replace it because that's where the cesium is, is housed. So you could actually run out of cesium, basically. Yeah. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's vacuum tubes, space qualified, um, and there's usually uh, two or more atomic clocks. Um, they were starting to use rubidium clocks on on a lot of the satellites, um, but now they're back to using cesium. Yeah, no, because um, the optical there have not been any optical clocks yet on the on the the satellites, and really. The beam tube clock, well, even a fountain clock. They've, we've done some work with fountain clocks that were going to be space for space, uh, but none of them have been deployed. You know that stuff takes 20 years to, to do. So they're still using beam tube clocks and and rubidium clocks on the satellites. Yeah. <laughs> Question. The tuning. So the tuning, um, so a quartz crystal, I think I mentioned it briefly. Um, this would be a good segue to talk about quartz crystals just for a second. So a quartz crystal, which is in almost everything, your cell phone, walkie-talkie, watch, anything that, almost any electronics, a radio especially, has a quartz crystal. And quartz has kind of this very interesting property where um, it's an exchange between um, physical motion and voltage. So if you had a little sliver of quartz, and uh, you bend it, it'll give off a voltage. Or if you give it the voltage in the right way, it will bend. And so what happens is you make an electronic circuit that basically gives a voltage, um, like a pulsing voltage to, a quartz, to this piece of quartz. And the quartz bends. And then when it bends back, it gives off a voltage. You take that voltage and feed it back in the electronic circuit. You have to amplify it a little, so it's not like a perpetual, just like a pendulum will slow down, right? The, it's not as much energy as you put in coming out, but you basically take that energy coming out and amplify it and put it back into the crystal. And then it bends again, and then it unbends, and then it feeds back and it bends again. So what happens is it starts to oscillate. It vibrates. And it vibrates because of this voltage, and the, the rate at which it vibrates is, depends on how, what size and how the angle and how it's cut. And so they cut a quartz crystal to be a particular frequency. And so um, in this electronic circuit, you can change the resistance or capacitance and change that frequency because of how you're administering the feedback voltage to the quartz crystal. And so there's going to be some kind of tuning range. Like you can't tune something from, uh, you know, like, uh, one kilohertz to nine gigahertz. Like, 
this piece of quartz is only going to it's going to have some kind of tunable range. So another piece of quartz will be like a higher frequency, and so there's some kind of tunable range to it. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's really just electronics. And you, if we automate it in a feedback loop, then um, you know there's not like somebody there trying to trying to maximize it. It's all electronics. That is a great question, and you're going to flip out when you hear the answer. Um, the question was, is there a official time for the world? And I'll add, how the heck does that happen, right? So this Bureau of International Measurements um, in France takes data, atomic clock data, from over 250 or 275 clocks from around the world, atomic clocks. We use satellites to compare clocks remotely. And we all submit our data of what time it is and our standard of frequency to the Bureau of International Measurements. Um, we, we send it to them like it was every month, right? So at the end of a month, you send them this file that's all of this clock data. And they take the, the, all these countries around the world, any country that has an atomic clock, even a commercially available atomic clock, and they, they do a weighted average. So they average all these clocks together. And a weighted average is... A, a little bit more sophisticated than an average in the sense that, I mean, you take an average and then whichever ones are farthest away from the average, you give them less weight. So it's a mathematical weight. And so then you, so you have all these clocks and they're averaged together and all the best ones are being used in the average and it's called a paper clock. They come up with this average number and then they file a report that says, here's the, the answer, which is about four or five weeks later. They say, here was what time it was four or five weeks ago, and here's how close you were, you know, America, Germany, England, anybody, all the contributors, they so file a report of, you know, how close everybody was. So really, the answer is nobody is right. It's, it's an average of all these countries. So we're the official time. NIST is the official source of time for America. There's agencies like NIST in many countries around the world. Uh, so we have UTC NIST, Coordinated Universal Time. We submit that to France. They're, they're doing it about weekly now, um, which is much faster. Uh, but still, if you're, if you're um, a small nation in Central America and you're, you have this, you, know, you get this report that says, oh, you were pretty far off. You were, you had, you were so far off you had zero weight in the final um, decision. And like nobody wants to hear that, right? Like, oh, we're not important enough. So. Um, <laughs> So they want to steer, right? They want to adjust their clocks to be better. But like the data is old, right? Their clocks have moved in frequency by the time they get the answer. One of the projects I'm working on is a real-time clock. It's for countries and all throughout North and South America. We have 22 measurement systems that I built put in these countries, and they basically measure their best clock. And we do these comparisons where they measure their clock to as many satellites they have in view. So we're actually utilizing the atomic clocks on board the satellites as a transfer standard. And I might talk about what that means. But um, uh, we could compare clocks remotely. So, they, so, they, so all of these countries submit their data every 10 minutes. And then we generate a graph. And so they can actually see their data right now how good it is and how far off in frequency they are. And so it's very powerful. Um, the, the BIPM doesn't really like us for that. They don't really want us to publish this stuff because we're kind of usurping their big, important 
you know, calculations and these things. And it's like, but we want, it, we want it to be more useful, you know, by doing it what we call a real-time clock. Uh, when I said transfer standard, um, that's something very interesting. So, like, in, in the early time of... Um, you know, nobody had watches, right? There was like some town square that the bell rang at noon or like quitting time on the Flintstones, right? They pull the bird's tail. Like, so in some sense, it doesn't matter what time it was, right? It's quitting time. That's what time it is. And, it's, and everyone hears the squawking of the bird or the, the noontime bell. And so that's what's cool about a standard is in order to have a standard, you just have to have something that everyone agrees on that that's right, right? Hey, when the bell rings, that's noon or it's lunchtime or whatever. So, uh, but you could do something more sophisticated than that in the sense that when you hear the noontime bell, you could actually look at your watch and you're like, oh, I have 12 noon and 5 seconds. You have 12 noon and 3 seconds. So what does that mean? I know that you and I, forget about that clock, we're 3 seconds off from each other. So we used that, that noontime bell as a transfer standard. It falls out of the equation. So that, I was five seconds off, you're three seconds off from it, so we know what our clocks are. And that's exactly how we compare clocks remotely. I look at a GPS satellite, record the data, somebody else in someone, you know, on the other side of the country or other side of the world, as long as we can see that satellite, which they're very high up, we can see satellites. We even have some satellites in common with Japan and England. So we record data from all the satellites in view at all times. And then we have a grid. It's all done um, dynamically on the web page. You pick two countries, and it takes all of the times that they had in common and makes that, makes that subtraction. So we know our clock versus their clock within a few nanoseconds. And the GPS clocks, I mean, it's handy that they're on time. But really, the GPS clocks could be totally wrong. It doesn't matter because it falls out of the equation. So. It's pretty interesting, this idea of like, you know, what's right and what's official and like, do we care what's right when like it's just between you and I, like we want to know what our clocks are. So it's a pretty powerful thing that, and that's the other thing is that we can measure time remotely, whereas a lot of the other standards like the kilogram and the meter and stuff like that, they, they really can't compare two meters not in the same room. So it's, it's powerful. Okay, one more question. Yeah, so the question was about the, the clocks on board the GPS satellites and how accurate are they because the more accurate they are, what would be the absolute best location you could get? And so that's true to a, to a pretty high degree. Um, there's several stations around the world measuring the GPS clocks and they're steered. Actually, the major steering center is at Shriver Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. Um, and uh, as people may know, GPS is a U.S. military system. And so it's run by the United States Naval Observatory. Uh, and so those clocks are steered to a pretty good degree, I mean, nanoseconds. Um, if the clocks were better on the GPS satellites, you would have a potential of having better um, positioning. However, the, that signal coming from, I can't remember, 22,000 miles above the Earth through the ionosphere, the troposphere, um, there's, there's some jitter in there. And GPS is 
not really great on the short term. So when we say short term, so like over, say, a minute or an hour, GPS is like moving around by like, you know, 20, 30 nanoseconds. Um, and there's a diurnal to it too, because um, the ionosphere changes at night, and so the you know the speed of light and the uh, the speed of the radio propagation are different coming through the ionosphere at day and night. So there's actually a diurnal. So if you measure if you if you measure GPS over a day, average it over a day, you're talking a few nanoseconds. But over that day, it might have been 25, 30 nanoseconds. So a better clock. That was a long answer for the short. Um, point that better clocks might not be that helpful in the sense that there's other a lot of other factors that come into play. Right, and there are things like um, uh, GPS um, satellites actually broadcast multiple frequencies, and so um, if you have a receiver that ha that can receive both, say, two frequencies, L1, L2 frequency. Those frequencies travel through the ionosphere, troposphere at different rates. So when they get to you, you actually have some information now, depending on the when you which one you got first and how much sooner between the two that came from the same satellite, and you can actually average out the ionosphere. So really, what you would want is um, more frequencies coming from the satellite and better hardware on the ground to be able to take out those corrections. Uh, well, man, this has been awesome. Thank you for having me. It's very cool. Um, I will stick around here for a few minutes if anyone has any more burning questions or if you want to know how ventriloquist dummies and Barbies play into this whole uh, thing. But my, um, my website, my personal website is called isaveeverything.com. So you can check it out. Get on my email list. I do crazy stuff in town. So, yeah, thanks again for everyone's attention.